0: there probably are some neurodiverse people in your workplace but the other sad thing is is among that group of people there's a really high unemployment rate and for those that are employed many of them are employed in roles that are way lower than their actual qualifications and capability.
1: That's Dr Valerie Keynes talking about the diversity reality facing Australian workplaces today. And she's got a message for us all.
0: One of the big things with HR is is we need to be courageous to step out of our obsession with compliance and think about equity and equality in our diversity. So it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to be treated exactly the same in order for it to be okay in our organisation to recruit that way.
1: Hi, I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and joining me today is Val Keynes, An expert in human resources, whose academic research stems from a time spent in HR departments across Australia's private and government sectors. Join us as we learn how a diversity-driven mindset can create strong work teams and take a business from box ticking to goal kicking. This is The Discovery Podcast. Hi, Val, and welcome to the Discovery Pod.
0: Hi, thank you for having me.
1: So, you're Senior Lecturer in Human Resource Management. Look, I'm really interested to talk to you today about what does diversity represent and what should it look like in the workplace?
0: Well, I think the first thing is what do we sort of define as diversity. And I guess there are certain levels of diversity that we have within the workplace. So, if we focus on the workplace... And at one point, it's the things we can see. So we can see someone's gender, for example. In most cases, we can see some cultural elements, even to some extent, some signals that might indicate what religion they are, those sorts of things. And there are also unseen things in terms of diversity. So we don't know necessarily people's social status. We don't necessarily know if they're possibly neurodiverse. We don't know some mental health disabilities. We can certainly see some physical disabilities, but not um, necessarily mental health. And then if we think about diversity in an organisational context, it's also about diversity in terms of where people are located in the organisation, their level in the business, the hierarchy, those sorts of diversity elements also come out. So there's kind of three levels to it. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of the diversity piece. So there's those what we call primary elements, which are sort of the visible things.
1: The obvious things. Yeah, the
0: obvious things that we can see generally that indicate to us, I guess, really from our perspective of how you're different to me. So I can see looking at you that, that... that you're a man, um, and so that is, you know, that's fairly clear. Mm. But there's lots of things about you and about me that that either of us can't can't see, and they're sort of the other elements of, of diversity. So those sort of secondary, unseen characteristics.
1: So I'm imagining an iceberg. So the the obvious characteristics are the tip that you can see, but there's yep. this whole stuff you don't know about and say so that might actually be more important in the long term about people.
0: Absolutely. And that under the water bit is mm. huge. Yep. And a lot of our diversity and inclusion activities in organisations have tended to focus on those primary or obvious characteristics. Mm. So we've done a lot of work around women in the workplace yep. Still more to
1: go, but uh, we've started to recognise those issues. That's right, that's
0: right. I'm hopeful we'll get equal pay one day, but let's... (laughs) But also disability, and a lot of that's been driven to a great extent by legislation. So a big element of diversity, particularly in Australia and other developed countries, has been that there's been legislation enacted to say that you can't discriminate against people in a workplace environment based on these sorts of diversity characteristics being their gender, their age. Mm. Age is a hard one to hide. Disability, those sorts of things. Yep. Yep. So then there's those ones underneath and, and that's probably where the work needs to be done.
1: So let's go and dive beneath the waves yeah, yeah, yeah. and let's find out a bit you know what 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 lies beneath as well in terms of those kind of secondary or unseen kind of diversity elements and you mentioned the term neurodiverse as well which uh, i think is a term which we have become much more aware of, but don't fully understand kind of what the full landscape of neurodiversity is. So maybe that that's a good place to start, if we could kind of unpack uh, that a little bit.
0: Yeah, I think there's a little bit of confusion around what neurodiversity is. I think a lot of people tend to package a lot of different things into neurodiverse when it does generally have a fairly clear definition in that it primarily focuses on people who are on the autism spectrum as the main area, but it can be other things. It it might be people who have dyslexia, people who have ADHD, and it can even include in some definitions things like social anxiety. It often gets confused with mental health.
1: Right. But in the definitions, they, these these are separate they're, issues. They're very
0: different yeah, issues. Yeah, yeah. And so it's it's not a mental health disorder to be on the autism spectrum.
1: Right. <laughs> <laughs> with a bit of counselling, you're not going to really recover from no, that. No, you know, it's, no. Uh, it's one of those so things actually, you live with. Yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. Neuro,
0: it's neurodiverse. You, th- you think differently. Yeah. You have different talents. I mean, it doesn't mean you might not have some mental health um, issues as um, anyone might have, but it certainly isn't a mental health issue. And Mm. so you're right, it's not something to be cured.
1: No, that's right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's something to be embraced. So I think we tend to- Understood
1: and worked with. Yeah, absolutely. Mm.
0: And it's not a disability either. So some people often kind of confuse it with, with disability, which mental health might fit into that disability category. And so it often gets a little bit confused there. So that's one of the areas that may not be immediately obvious. And this is an area I find particularly intriguing because probably all of us out there work with someone who's neurodiverse. And in fact, you know, I'm not a gambling woman, but I'd put money on it because. I don't have any Australian statistics, but in the US it's about one in 49 people mm. actually is on the autism spectrum. Mm. So if you work with 50 or more people, I guess <laughs> the odds are. Um, and in many ways we probably uh, have become more aware of it. Society has become more aware of it. Thankfully, there's a lot more earlier um, a diagnosis of children, with that that particularly that are on the autism spectrum or have ADHD, and also particularly for women because that's been a real area where it's been undiagnosed, because mm. women are able usually to mask mm. some of the indicators a little bit better than boys are. Mm. But what we see then is is that there probably are some neurodiverse people in your workplace. But the other sad thing is, is among that group of people, there's a really high unemployment rate. And for those that are employed, many of them are employed in roles that are way lower than their actual qualifications and capability. So when we are thinking about in more recent times, as we come out of COVID, and there's been a lot of discussion about the talent shortage that organisations are facing, That's one of the key groups, our talent pool, that we've kind of ignored.
1: New research shows employers across the country are struggling to boost their own labour numbers. Jobs and Skills Australia releasing the top 20 occupations in greatest demand.
0: Never have we seen job advertisements this high for this long. If you look at the front page of every newspaper today, many of them, are talking about skill shortages and about what's required. 153 occupations were short on staff last year. This year, that's more than doubled to 286 occupations.
1: The pharmacist over there needs four more staff. This florist needs two more workers. The cafe across the road needs a cook and two front of house
0: staff. The Gem Hotel could do with 30 more workers. The area hotel needs 15 people.
1: Being squeezed for years by a pandemic and all the economic challenges that came with it, Australia's labour market is now crying out for more workers to keep the economy ticking over. A recent report released by Jobs and Skills Australia revealed healthcare, software, retail and engineering industries to be among those most in need of a skills boost. So demand is high, yet a portion of our population remains overlooked when it comes to the recruitment process. And it's not just new or diverse people at risk of being, as Val puts it, ignored.
0: Older workers is another one. Again, when we are thinking about talent shortage, older workers are often overlooked in organisations. I find that intriguing because they'll all be an older worker one day. And I think that mental health is another issue. We still have a lot of work to do in terms of that not obvious level Mm. about how we can better accommodate.
1: So there are job vacancies, and there are people out there who can fill those job vacancies. But according to Val, a diversity mindset during recruitment means so much more than just filling job vacancies.
0: Now, the good news I have for you is that inevitably, when you work, when you do the work to fix one area, it does have flow-on effects for all areas.
1: Okay, so how do how does that work?
0: So when you get more for
1: good news stories. Right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> so
0: once you get it right yeah. and one of the arguments has always been once we can get workplaces right for women, in fact we'll actually make men's working lives better. Yeah. And I think a real evidence of that has been with maternity leave, which by the way now is called parental leave. Mm-hmm. Because it's now been acknowledged that often there are two people involved in in parenting, mm. not always, but often there is, mm. and that they both would equally like to be involved mm. in that, and it's kind of given permission for this new generation. And I say that because I'm a bit older. This new generation of men to actually put their hand up and say, you know what, mm. I'm taking a couple of months off. Mm. Three I'd like off. to be
1: involved in this. It's yeah, it's important to me too. It's I'm gonna yeah. have
0: three months and focus on mm. supporting my partner, on or maybe being the primary carer of my child. And things like flexible working, working from home. Um these all of these issues have been couched generally as a way to assist women in the workplace. But mm. in fact, of men who love flexible working Mm, and it might be for different reasons or older people that love flexible working or working from home. And so I think if we can solve some of these problems for one group, we can probably solve it for other groups. And I think in this argument, I would say if, for example, we were to think about how we could attract and recruit and select neurodiverse people we could probably also help a lot of other people yeah. that are applying for jobs in organisation to have a fair go at getting employment.
1: Mm. And so, yeah, you work out yeah. a way a way in for groups and then it makes it easier to expand through the groups. But also the the advantage for the workplaces can be substantial from having this more diverse workforce within particular organisations. And I think... The advantage of being exposed to different life experiences, different perspectives, different cultures, different ways mm. of processing information and life views, that then leads to a kind of mat- maturity within an organization that can spread its vision more broadly across society as well, isn't it? So I think, yeah. for me, I think this it's critical that modern organizations are able to adopt those different perspectives within their work profile because then that gives advantage to the organisation in terms of where it goes as well.
0: Yeah, I think you make a great point. And to really leverage that, Mm. then you need diversity at all levels of the organisation. Leadership right down. And so what what you've got to have is you've got to have diversity across the board. And so, you know, one of the things I always find intriguing when I look at, you know, what goes on in the US. In the US, they they love to count uh, things as part of diversity and they do have quotas and things like that in mm-hmm. some areas. And organisations can be very proud when, you know, they sort of say, well, you know, we have we have, you know, 50% black American or we have 50% Latino workers and we go, oh, that's good. Mm. <laughs> but then you really have to look underneath the stats and you have to say, so where are those people in terms of gender, in yeah. terms of level in the organisation, in terms of maybe whether there are any LBG, DQI people in amongst that group, and then you start to say, hmm, interesting. So, all of the female Black Americans work in clerical roles. Yep. And that happens to be roughly 50% of your business. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) And in fact, all the managers (laughs) are middle-aged white men. (laughs) Right.
1: Yeah. So you've got diversity across the organisation, but yeah, not through roles and not through your... And there's no chance really of getting that promotion then through into those other levels from, from some of these. Yeah minority or they might be majority sectors. Uh, So you're
0: not going to leverage the benefit when you haven't got Mm. diverse people influencing and being part of the decision making in your business. That's what's really important. They need to be in roles that make decisions in the organisation.
1: What Val is talking about here, the practice of only hiring neurodiverse, age diverse, gender diverse people in certain roles at certain times, is also known as diversity washing. And it does nothing to enrich the perspectives and decisions made at the executive level that go on to shape the company and our wider society. But when we're looking to change things from the top down, it can be difficult to know what foundations need to be laid. So if we want to incorporate these secondary and tertiary elements of diversity into our workforces, where on earth do we start? What practices and prejudices need to be put aside in order to progress? I've probably got some colleagues that I would put uh, on the spectrum. In fact, I'm probably a little bit on the spectrum myself, and I suffered with dyslexia when I was at school. You know, and I've worked out ways to cover that up. I was never very good at spelling. But of course, with PCs and with, you know, spell checkers, that's, uh, you know, improved my life and still process things more visually through diagrams rather than through words. And so just that kind of diverse way of taking in information. Fortunately, I was in a career where that didn't matter too much and, in fact, was probably a benefit in some areas. You talked a little bit about the negative area of, you know, confining a sector of society into certain roles within an organization but there are certain characteristics of neurodiverse people or other, other areas that might make certain roles, they might be able to perform really well in those roles and kind of deep information collating might be more suited to somebody with a neurodiversity issue. Do, do you see those kind of, what we could think of as kind of positive issues for some of these this diversity landscape?
0: Absolutely. Mm. I think there are... And I'm not saying that all neurodiverse people are necessarily highly intelligent, but I've worked in two industries in my, before I was an academic, I was a HR executive and I've worked in defense and I've consulted to, and also worked in universities. And I'd say those two in particular from my own experience have been sort of little hotspots of, mm. of neurodiverse people. Mm. And the reason and it's for, a
1: spectrum, isn't it?
0: Absolutely. But I think, and also I've worked with actuaries, I've worked anywhere, any kind of job that requires deep focus, deep thinking, um, pattern recognition, mathematics. Often these are talents that neurodiverse people have and it's just the way the brain is wired. Like you said, mm. you're very visual, you see things and so what organisations have done that have have had programs around specifically targeting neurodiverse people to come and join the business, have done is kind of recognise that and recognise that they're really good in those roles. So I think one of the key things, though, and this is sort of a message for HR practitioners and managers and organisations, is one of the things that we've done, I think with good intention, is that we've tried to be very consistent in the way we recruit and select employees. Now we do that because we want to be seen to being equitable and just and have defensible decisions in our process. Mm -hmm. So from a, you know, compliance perspective. And in doing that, what we have done though is we've created an environment where in particular this group of people will get shortlisted out almost instantly from the recruitment process. because they won't do well in a lot of the attributes that we think that a good employee needs to have. Now, I'm not saying these aren't important, but I would just say to people, think about how important that they are and in what context. So we want everyone to be an extrovert. (laughs)
1: <laughs> so you've immediately ruled out half the population, right? Yeah. So, so yeah. you know,
0: you've got to be out yeah. there, you've got to sell yourself, right. you know, got to be, a, they call it a bit of the salesman personality. So it's mm. not necessarily, now look, we've debunked that in terms of leaders. Leaders don't have to be extroverts. I don't think necessarily employees need to be. And in fact, I would say not. No. So as a noisy extrovert, I can say you don't want too many of us around. <laughs> and so then we say, okay, you got to be a good team player. Well, yes, you do. Uh, to an extent. You have to be able to interact with a team.
1: You have to be able to talk, you know. Collaborate. Collaborate, that's right. But not all jobs are team jobs, are they?
0: No. Yeah. And in particular, some jobs in academia, for example, and in defence, when you're given a package of work, Um, you're really left to your own devices for a period of time. You want to
1: go into your cave and work out their solution so and then code, bring it out. Cut your come right. back
0: out and then have a chat to people about yeah, it. That's... Uh, yeah, and so we want them to be these team players, these extroverts, and of course we don't necessarily see that in a neurodiverse person. And then we go through our selection process. And, you know, we have, with COVID, we have our video interviews and that might be another podcast another day, but we might be <laughs> using AI... To interpret the uh, video content that you've wow. loaded up for your interview. Yeah. And I bet you that one of the criteria that will be coded in one of the algorithms will be eye contact.
1: Yep, percentage eye contact. Yeah.
0: Okay. Or we have an interview and, you know, you hear comments and I've been on thousands of interviews where people say, oh, you know, they didn't really keep eye contact. They were very fidgety. They kept, I don't know, maybe touching their watch or whatever. You know, they were overwhelmed or they, you know, got very focused on one question and kind of rambled on a bit. Yeah, that's neurodiversity. Mm. (laughs) And then comes in Mr. or Mrs. Salesperson, who's slick, firm handshake, eye contact, single handedly ran their (laughs) last organization.
1: Mm. (laughs) That's uh, always a good sign, that one. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And all of a sudden, you know, it keeps the
1: conversation at this level, keeps it kind of high, bubbling along, doesn't go down to detail.
0: Remembers everyone on the panel's oh, name. Oh, remembers their names.
1: Hate yeah. those people. Crikey. <laughs> <laughs> but they
0: get the jobs. Oh, I'm so bad at that. Oh, They my God, get yeah. the jobs. They get the jobs. <laughs> <laughs> sure you give a firm handshake and establish eye contact. This is important because a firm handshake tells the hiring manager you are a confident person. Confidence is a feeling. And if you wear something that makes you feel confident, then you'll walk into that interview oozing confidence. And that is very desirable for an interviewer.
1: Arguably the most crucial part of the job search, an interview can make or break an opportunity. Got an interview this week. When meeting with the interviewers, repeat their names, Say their names over and over to remember them. Do not make any joke about their name. Try to link their face to a picture, like Mr. Joe Python getting hit in the face with a pie. Thank them for their time and tell them how you look forward to landing the job. While anyone will tell you how frustrating it is to contend with smooth talking and conventionally perfect job seekers, Val is working to disrupt the very importance we give to those superficial indicators of being a good employee. so your research is kind of helping implement some of these solutions into these workplaces so what what do you recommend
0: i think we need to be courageous and i think one of the big things in with hr is is we need to be courageous to step out of our obsession with compliance and think about more generally equity an equality in our diversity, so it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone has to be treated exactly the same in order for it to be okay in our organisation to recruit that way. However, I would suggest that possibly you do recruit that way for everyone, the way I'm going to suggest. Yep. It's a bit out there.
1: This is a place for out there ideas, let's go, Um,
0: You know, one of the ways that we can recruit diverse people, and the way I'm about to suggest is great for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people as well, is you have hangouts. Hmm. It's really like a, a super mini work experience. Okay. So rather than have an interview with eight people and you on the other <laughs> side of the table, but rather than that, have them have a buddy for the morning or the afternoon or maybe a whole day and just get them to do some tasks that are evolved in the role. Yeah. To have some one-on-ones with people to experience the workplace. Yeah have a conversation with them about accommodations that they might need to work in your organisation. This is a question I like to ask anyone in an interview. You know, what accommodations do you need? And it will be, and again, this is for everyone, it might be that I really need to work from home on Thursdays because that's a childcare gap I have or having one day away from the office enables me to get stuff done or whatever. They might say, I need to wear headphones because yep. I find a noisy work environment. And for someone who's neurodiverse, who gets overstimulated by a lot of noise, they might either need a, a quiet space to work mm. or they might be needed to say, look, I, I'm just going to wear headphones. Mm. And, and some neurodiverse people that I've worked with wear their headphones all the time. Yep. And they'll take them off to talk to you, yep. but they will wear them all the time. So it's about asking sort of, so in that, you know, oh, I'm going to invite you in, Andy, for a, have a morning with us. Yep. You know, what, what accommodations would work for you? And you say, well, you know, and well, I'm going to be wearing my headphones mm. and maybe it's certain clothes you wear. I don't know. Whatever it is, <laughs> whatever it is. Yeah. I worked with someone in defence who could not work unless the back was off his computer. He had to see what was inside oh, really? the, the box. Yeah. And so My son's like that. His cranky. room was full uh-huh. of computers with the boxes off. I mean, I'm not quite sure how he'd work in the laptop world, but that same person did come and see me one day and tell me that, that he was a bit horrified because he'd, he'd had a few rough days because he hadn't paid his power bill for six months and they'd cut him off. Yeah. Mm. Um, <laughs> So, really focused on his work. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant guy. PhD in mathematics.
1: But this other stuff, does it's just not as peripheral. important. Is it peripheral? That's right. That's, I think that... that...
0: Until the power gets cut off and then yeah. it all comes back into focus <laughs> a little bit. Um, so, I think if we can do that, and so... But it does take us to be... A little bit more courageous, and Mm. I think I think fundamentally, Andy, Mm. one of the biggest barriers I think to all of the diversity and inclusion work we do is that there is a large group of managers, leaders, who are still holding tightly to the old concept of the ideal worker. Okay, now the ideal worker—it's changed a little bit, but roughly speaking, youngish sort of 30-ish, male, heterosexual, healthy, fully abled, ideally married. I remember an older manager once telling me, once they're married, it cuts the rough edges off. (laughs) (laughs) They can work longer because their wife will do the housework, you know, (laughs) look after them. And I think we still hang on to that a little bit. And so we need to kind of work out what our unconscious bias is around this because we see accommodations as a burden, rather than Mm. as just an acceptance that we're all a bit different, we all like to work a bit differently.
1: If we encourage HR departments to separate an interviewee's competence from their confidence, we can make room for all kinds of different minds, skill sets and backgrounds in our workplaces. So what's Val's overarching message for all these HR professionals?
0: So what do we need to do? I mean, when you buy a new car, I don't know if you have bought a new car recently, but one of the first things, because I'm not necessarily great with cars, is I want to know what kind of petrol I need to put in. Is it 95? Is it 98? And then I bought a car where they recommended 98, and I thought, oh god, now I need another mortgage. But it's like, wouldn't you want to know that about your employee? So what do I need?
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. What's
0: going to make you run?
1: Yeah, really most well. efficiently.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And you say, well, these are the things that will help me to be most productive in my role.
1: So I've got, I've got three points from what you said. So being courageous. So relax those selection criteria and think about the kind of. The expertise that you need for the role not necessarily the ideal employee hangouts and kind of having a a kind of work experience experience uh, as part of the interview because then you're really assessing people for what they would be able to do within the role rather than just relying on the interview and then yeah asking the question what do you need to perform to the best of your ability within this role
0: Yes, yeah. absolutely. That's exactly it, I think. I think.
1: I think we should go straight to HR <laughs> <laughs> and make I'm, these recommendations. I'll be right behind <laughs> you. <laughs> and say you apply for a big grant and got it just next week and uh, it kind of gave you unlimited funding to be able to do what you wanted. What do you think is the the major challenge that you would like to really start to
0: tackle and
1: and how would you make history?
0: Well, I think one of the things that I'm very passionate about is what we currently refer to as retirement and late career. Mm. We really don't know very much about it. We're one of the... First generations, baby boomers and Gen X are sort of the generations that have both the health, cap- you know, health ability, life expectancy to work longer,
1: mm.
0: and it's challenging all of our concepts around late career retirement. So you know, what is retirement? Retirement has, I think some really negative connotations to it. Mm people don't necessarily want to use the word, I'm retired, some do. I think if you're a 30-year-old software developer who's just made $100 million, you're probably happy to tell it's everyone you're retired. <laughs> Maybe if you're 55 and you were forced into retirement, you're not yep. so keen to <laughs> announce that. So I think I'd like to really reframe that and put some more emphasis. We've done a lot of emphasis on in research areas around early career, about how people get into careers, use careers, mm. stay in careers, build their career into mid-career. We still view late career as sort of 45 onwards or whatever. And in fact, if we worked until 70, that's a really long period of time. Yeah, That's longer than, it could be longer than mid-career, early career combined. Yeah. But we really don't know very much about it. We don't talk about it in organisations. The research that I've done and, and some of my collaborators have done We've kind of noticed that that late career and retirement, that's kind of been pushed onto the individual and the organisations don't really take responsibility for that. Again, it's a little bit, I think society has moved on and there's now a bit more of an acknowledgement that people will work longer and people are less likely to ask an older relative, oh, when are you retiring? Mm. As a first, you know, like it's kind of more, what are you up to? We, We tend... But a bit more
1: neutral that question. A isn't little it? bit more neutral. I'm not yeah. saying we're there yeah, yeah. yet, but a little <laughs> bit more
0: neutral. But organisations have still tend to put a bit of a use by date on our heads mm. in terms of our contribution, and so we we still need to kind of really puzzle that out and think about what could late career look like. And I'm currently doing some really early early work thinking about actually what what is retirement. Is it? So if I had lots of money, we we would definitely work on that. We would work on that late career piece. So in the gerontology, they focus very much on older, older people. Mm. And then the career literature focuses on middle-aged people. Yep. And there's a big group in the middle that are kind of overlooked. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's almost the elephant in the room because people don't want to talk about Retirement, and which is why I think maybe that word needs to change, but it would be like sort of saying so so Andy, what's next? you know mm-hmm. having that real a, a bit like we would have had with you um you know very early in your career yep. where you know what what do you want you know these are the things I would like so what what do you want to do mm. for the next um you know until you're seventy seventy five whatever when you might choose not to do any work. Mm you know, what, what is it you would like to achieve and then tailoring it around that But We're kind of scared to ask that question. Again, we try and be compliant because, you know, it's a compliance thing or we don't want to seem to be being age, you know, age discrimination, but it doesn't have to be necessarily about your age. It's sort of like, well, you know, you've been a professor for five years. Yep. Um, you know, what what would you like your legacy to be? What yep. would you like, what would you like, what would you like to be doing? Mm. And and they're really important conversations to have.
1: Yeah. Fantastic. Val, thanks very much for, I think, having the courageous conversation around diversity and kind of recognising those those different strengths and weaknesses that we all harbour and working with those to offer a, a, a vision of a, a more productive workplace uh, here in Australia. Thank you very much,
0: Val. Oh, thank you, Andy. I really enjoyed it.
1: I’m so excited to imagine the kinds of workplaces the next generations will work in informed by BaL’s research. Not just celebrating differences but leveraging them for better work outcomes and for everyone’s well-being. Everyone’s experiences and thought are individual, and when we approach hiring with diversity in mind, we quickly find that what divides us also has the power to unite us toward common goals and productive lives. Thank you to Val for teasing out those ideas for the sake of people who are often excluded and for the rest of us who stand to benefit from shifting perspectives and embracing differences. And thanks as well to you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a review, rate us five stars. And while you're at it, why not share this episode with your friends and family? In our next episode, we interview Dr. Sanjay Mazumdar on the evolving horizons of warfare. We really need to invest in the R&D associated to keep us ahead of our our bad actors. Because they're moving at a million miles an hour, they're not constrained by laws, policies, regulations. So we need to stay ahead of them in terms of the capability. National security and defence is such a huge topic at the moment. So join us next time as we deep dive into the research driving this sector. In the meantime, if you have a topic that you think we need to explore, you can get in touch with us at podcast at adelaide.edu.au. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Professor Andy Lowe, and you're listening to The Discovery Pop, brought to you by the University of Adelaide.
0: So, what do
1: you want to know next?